0: Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to Psalm six. I am Sam Renahan, and some of you know me, and I know you, but if you don't know me, Sam, I am. I come to you from the West Coast, best Coast, Los Angeles, California. And I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on behalf of Trinity Reformed Baptist Church, where I serve as one of the pastors in Los Angeles. The the city in particular where I serve is called La Mirada. Um, The only reason you might know La Mirada is if you know Biola University, which is in La Mirada. And some of you may have uh, sent your children there at some point or may know someone who attended. We are at the the, south, the southern edge of Los Angeles County. If you go another mile south, you're in Orange County. And then if you pass through Orange County, you hit San Diego County, keep going, and you're in Mexico. So we live in and serve in Los Angeles County. My wife, Kimberly, and my son, Owen, uh, live there, of course. And it's uh, a pleasure to be with you again after about uh, five years ago, I think, that I was here for the conference in the past I'd like to preach the Word of God to you this morning from Psalm 6, where the Scriptures show us not only the words of David, but they also show to us the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we consider our Lord and Savior, Jesus, The Scriptures teach us that His suffering and His death on the cross were not only an atoning sacrifice to satisfy God's justice and take away our sins and make us righteous in Him. It was that, praise the Lord. It is also at the same time an example for us to follow in His footsteps. Like Jesus did, we should live innocently. We should live uprightly, and we should be willing to suffer in His name just as He suffered. Indeed, the Apostle Peter in his letter says, in his first letter, says, To this you have been called. You have been called to follow Jesus' example in innocent and obedient suffering. It was mentioned this morning in the Sunday School for Romans 8 that if we suffer with Christ, we will also enter into the glory of Jesus Christ. But how? How does one follow Jesus' example and endure suffering, even at times unjust suffering? How can we follow His example? Psalm 6 helps us to answer the question of how can we follow the example of Jesus in suffering, even unjust suffering? Let's read Psalm 6. This is the very Word of God. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears, I drench my couch with my weeping, my eye wastes away because of grief, it grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, the Lord has heard my plea, the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Psalm 6 is a psalm of David, and it's like many other psalms. Where we see David confronted or surrounded by his enemies, we see him suffering and enduring affliction, and we see him crying out to God for deliverance, and God giving him deliverance and victory over his enemies. And that is what what Psalm six is—a psalm of David expressing his own heart, his own mind, his own experience, his own words, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the unity of all of Scripture. This is also representing to us and communicating to us the mind and the words of Jesus Christ. In particular, the mind and words of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha, in the garden before the authorities, both Jewish and Roman, and indeed on the cross at Calvary. And so we can use Psalm 6 to better understand Jesus' example of suffering so that we can imitate it, so that we can be like Him, so that we can be like Jesus and follow His example and learn how to suffer righteously, how to suffer well. I would ask you to consider with me three main points in the sermon this morning, three things drawn from Psalm 6. The first of these points is express yourself to God. Express yourself to God. Now, I'm going to state something obvious and simple. Different cultures are different. You say, thank you, Captain Obvious. I deserve a promotion to Admiral Obvious. Different cultures are different. One of the things that is different between different cultures is the degree to which, as well as the way in which, they express themselves. Some cultures are more expressive and communicative. Some cultures tend to be less expressive and communicative. Uh, If it's okay to stereotype just a little bit, understanding these are generalizations, and I'm speaking only for myself, when I think of Europeans, I would put Italians on the more expressive side. And I would put Finns, people from Finland, on the less expressive, non-expressive side. Finns are uh, stereotypically and infamously antisocial, whereas uh, I would think of Italians generally to be towards the other end of the, the spectrum of expressiveness. Uh, when I go to uh, Latin America, the, the worship and the people there are very expressive. They might even come and, and give you a kiss on the cheek and yet where i grew up in new england no one would do that it's it's not expressive or at least not in the same ways so some cultures are more or less expressive more or less communicative and that can be good or bad in a number of contexts well this happens in religion and this happens in church also certain church cultures, whether it's a denomination or a a particular area with churches, or a particular church, also have sort of cultures of expressiveness, either on the higher or the lower side of that expressiveness. And in churches that are very influenced by Reformed theology, such as Reformed Baptist churches, um, sometimes we're on the less expressive side, for better or for worse. And so you may wonder, to what degree is it acceptable uh, to express myself to God? Well, I want you to look at Psalm 6, understanding this to be not only the words of David but also the words and feelings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I want you to see this as an example of what is appropriate and godly in expressing ourselves to God. We see here in this psalm the agony of Jesus, as I said, in Gethsemane, Gabbatha, and Golgotha. We see Jesus in the midst of intense suffering, crying out to God and expressing Himself, and this is appropriate, and it is right. Consider with me Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. It's just one verse. Just listen. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says this, "'In the days of His flesh,' So, Jesus, God incarnate, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, it says, with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. In one verse, we're told that Jesus has loud cries and tears, and we're told He's heard for His reverence. So, loud cries and tears are not necessarily irreverent. Loud cries and tears indeed can be, they are not necessarily, but they can be reverent. We can pray earnestly, even intensely, even vehemently, and yet be reverent in our expression God. And Psalm 6, as well as other psalms, help us to see what that looks like. Let's read again verses 1 through 6 and see loud cries and tears and yet a reverence. "'O Lord, rebuke me not in Your anger, nor discipline me in Your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled, my soul also is greatly troubled.' But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you and she all who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. We see here the psalmist, as well as a representation of our Lord's mind, bringing petitions to God with loud cries and tears. You may think to yourself at times, I I shouldn't express myself to God. If I'm suffering, then it is God's will that I endure affliction, and therefore it would be irreverent or disrespectful for me to ask God to remove it, he has permitted this in my life. And so, who am I to express myself to God and ask Him to remove this affliction from me? But Psalm 6 says, No, bring your petitions to God. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. How long, O Lord? We see here sanctified emotion. The psalmist speaks with earnest agony. And so also, we should not think that just because God has permitted us to pass through affliction, that we cannot express our petition that God would also deliver it, deliver us from it. But you see, we can express ourselves to God, we can express our emotion and bring our petitions to Him, but we must submit our emotions and our petitions to God. And this is where our cultural perceptions at times can impede us and get in the way. Some may say, emotion is bad. That's not true. God made us with emotions. They're not bad. They're natural and they're human. It's excess of emotion that is is bad. It's emotions that cross the boundaries that God has set for them. That's bad. Emotion itself is not bad within the boundaries of reason and law, but we must not be overcome by our emotions. Think about this. The Scriptures say, be angry and do not sin. There is a righteous anger. There is a just anger. There is a proper anger that's not sinful. But there is an anger that crosses the line and is sinful. There is a love that is not sinful, but there is a love that becomes lust that is sinful. So, emotion itself is not bad or wicked or unholy or sinful. God made us with emotions, and we can express ourselves to God with holy, sanctified, and submissive emotion. It is not sin to grieve over that which is grievous. In fact, we're told to grieve with those who grieve, to weep with those who weep. It's not, sad, it's not sin to be sad because of that which is saddening. If something grievous and difficult and sad happens, it is natural and normal to be grieved and to be sad. But if we allow that to conquer us, or if we allow that grief to become um, a uselessness and, all, and other things, then our sadness may be excessive and become sinful, But sadness itself at that which is saddening is not sin. Jesus endured hardship in body and in soul. He suffered agony in both flesh and heart, and He expresses this. We see it in Psalm 6, and as He does so, He's not defying God. He's not accusing God. He's simply expressing His agony and asking for mercy and relief in God's timing. Now, of course, that's a key phrase, isn't it? In God's timing. How long, O Lord? So, we ought to express ourselves to God with sanctified and submissive emotion. In so doing, understanding our emotions to be within the boundaries that God has set for them, we do not sin, but rather we are following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, not only should we express ourselves to God, but secondly, entrust yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks of how Jesus responded to suffering. He says in verse 23 of 1 Peter 2, he says, Jesus did not threaten… But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And in Psalm 6, we see this. We see the psalmist entrusting himself to God by saying, How long, O Lord? I submit this to you. I'm asking you, not as an accusation, not as a defiance, but I ask, I humbly ask, How long? O oh, Lord, this is a way of entrusting ourselves to God. And as we pass through various and necessary trials for a time, we must express ourselves to God, but also entrust ourselves to God. So, to further explain this, uh, consider 3 subpoints here with me. Firstly, in order to entrust ourselves to God, we must remember that God's anger is not a passion. God's anger is not a passion. Verse 1 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. We have a nice Hebrew parallelism here. Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So God's anger and God's wrath are being mentioned. And as we entrust ourselves to God, we need to understand that God's anger and God's wrath are not like ours, and that that's a very good thing. (laughs) Let me explain. In us, in man, anger and wrath are passions. A passion is a motion, it's a movement. We are moved in and out of all kinds of emotional states or dispositions. We call them emotions. They are passions. A passion is something that happens to you. It's something you are undergoing as something acts upon you. Action produces passion. Things act on us, and we experience uh, responses and dispositions that are changing as a result. You strike me, and I become angry. You have moved me to anger by doing something bad unto me. We perceive evil in others and we are moved to anger perhaps even justly and rightly or we see something that upsets us and we're moved to anger not rightly, illegitimately. The Scriptures say that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God because when we are moved to anger we almost always and almost immediately transgress the boundaries God has set. Anger in us is when we see something bad and we want to uh, avenge or we want to make right, we want to punish, we need to understand that there is no passion in God. There are no passions in God, and therefore God's anger and God's wrath are not a passion. They're not an emotional state in God. So then what is God's anger? and what is God's wrath, and why do we say that God is angry or that God has wrath? We even use the catechism question to say that God is exceedingly angry with those who blaspheme His name and use it in vain. What does it mean? God's anger is His justice when it is applied to wicked objects. God's anger is not a fluctuating, changing emotional state like us. God's anger is His perfect, unchanging justice in relation to a wicked object. The same is true of God's wrath. It is His punishment and revenge or vengeance against the wicked. But it's the effect that we feel of a perfect, unchanging justice in God. So, when I experience God's justice against my sins, it's not that I've moved God to to be angry. It's that I have done what is sinful, and God's justice punishes me or disciplines me. So, when God permits affliction in my life, I can entrust myself to Him because I remember He's not mad at me. He's not doing this because He's mad at me. That's how people act. You make me angry, I treat you in a harsh way. That's not God's anger. That's not God's wrath, and I can entrust myself to Him because He's not someone who's just giving me the silent treatment or making me feel bad because He's mad at me. I thank God that His anger and wrath are not a passion, not an emotion like it is in humans, but rather His perfect justice that disciplines and chastises and trains us in love. So, we need to ask ourselves when God permits these afflictions in our lives, what sin is God exposing in me? Instead of saying, how can I get God to not be angry with me anymore? Don't think like that. Rather think, what sin in me is God exposing? I can entrust myself to God because He's exposing sin in my life by permitting these afflictions. His discipline is training me. He's not Angry at me like humans get mad and angry and upset. He's a loving father whose discipline for his children is what we call his anger, and his vengeance on the wicked is his wrath. The second subpoint under this heading we can entrust ourselves to God, or, or we will be more able to entrust ourselves to God when we remember in the second place that afflictions apply to both body and soul. Afflictions apply to both body and soul. We see this in, in verses 2 and 3, where the psalmist says, I'm languishing, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled, my, my body, my physical being. And then in verse 3, my soul also is greatly troubled. So suffering in body and suffering in soul. We need to understand that our physical afflictions, as well as the afflictions of the soul, all of these things are within God's providence. He is sovereign over them all. And so, when I am suffering in my body, or when another is sick and suffering in their body, that person needs to say, God is teaching me to entrust myself to Him in the weakness and the pain of my body. I don 't have the energy that I wish that I had, or I feel pains and aches that I wish I weren't feeling, or I can't do what I used to do, or this disease is debilitating me, or this disease is, is destroying a part of my body, or this disease is destroying the whole of my body. I need to entrust the, the afflictions of my body to God. This is not outside of His providence. this is not outside of His control. And the same applies. To afflictions of the soul, our our sadness and our grief, our doubts and our despairs. We need to look at trouble in the soul, sorrow and grief, and say, God is teaching me in the pain of my soul, in the agony of my soul, in the darkness of my heart, to entrust myself to Him. We express ourselves to God, my bones are troubled. We express ourselves to God. My soul also is greatly troubled. We entrust ourselves to Him. This is not happening because He's just mad at me. In fact, God doesn't get mad. This is happening because God is sovereign over afflictions that apply to both body and soul. Which leads us to our 3rd subpoint here. God's permission is purposeful. God's permission is purposeful. We can entrust ourselves to God when we remember that God permits these afflictions for good and holy purposes. It's not because He's mad at me. It's not because He's ignorant or absent and He says, oh, I I didn't know that was happening. But rather, God is sanctifying us. He's purifying us by testing us and proving our faith as He accomplishes His holy purposes in us and through us. The psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord? When we express our petitions to God, we ought also to entrust ourselves to Him, as Jesus did. He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. And that means that we trust that God's timing is perfect timing, and that His permission is purposeful. We ought to do everything that we can to undo affliction or to escape affliction, but ultimately we recognize that these things will last as long as God permits them to last in His wise providence. Now, for some, that doesn't sound like relief. Why? Because it sounds like Okay, God may permit my suffering to continue, and I just have to be okay with that? That's how, where's the relief? (laughs) How can I entrust myself to one whose purpose is to allow my suffering to continue? I don't understand. But again, God's timing is not our timing. Did not Paul ask God? to remove what he called a thorn in his flesh? Did he not ask God three times, and yet God allowed it to remain? Some people do drench their bed in tears and drown in their sorrow and cry out to God, and those weary children may say, "'How can I entrust myself to one who may not take away my afflictions?' But we can entrust ourselves to God, brothers and sisters, because He most certainly has taken away our afflictions, and He most certainly will take away our afflictions. And we know this if we remember whose footsteps we are following. Remember whose example we are imitating. Jesus' suffering went all the way to His death. But what did Jesus say on the cross? he said, it is finished. And what did he say after he rose from the dead? He said, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." We can entrust ourselves to God because He has taken away our afflictions in Jesus Christ and He will take away our afflictions in Jesus Christ. But we must be patient because the final lifting up of God's people is at death. And then the final, final lifting up of God's people is at the resurrection when Jesus returns to bring all things to completion. But you see... Jesus' resurrection makes it absolutely certain that all of my afflictions, every single one of them, have a termination point. They've all been limited and bounded and ended. And so, it may be, dear brother or dear sister, that God permits your affliction to persist until your death. It may be that the rest of your life is spent with some pain or affliction in body and soul, or both. And yet, this is not God abandoning you, because He has set a limit, and He has said, there will come a time when you will sin no more, you will have no more sorrow, and no more suffering. I have freed you in my Son, Jesus Christ. When we say, how long, O Lord? He says, 70 years of exile on this earth perhaps 80, perhaps 90 years of exile on this earth, perhaps even 100. And that is all. And then I bring you home where there is no more sorrow, sin, or suffering. We can entrust ourselves to God because sin and sorrow and suffering have been overcome. They have all been limited through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and there is no more affliction for the Christian when we are freed from this flesh prison, as some have called the body. This, brothers and sisters, is our time of judgment and suffering. This is our hell on earth, but this is all that we must suffer. This is it. This is the full extent of our suffering. Will you be patient and wait for your inheritance? Or will you say, no, I want pleasure now. I want pleasure now. That's the prodigal son who says, I'll have my heaven on earth, thank you very much. No, we accept the hell on earth, the exile in Babylon, and we do so expressing ourselves to God. How long, O Lord? But also entrusting ourselves to God. How long, O Lord? When we do this, when we entrust… express ourselves to God and entrust ourselves to God, we can do in the third place, thirdly and finally, expect the glory of God. Expect the glory of God. In Psalm 6, we see the psalmist uh, pointing up to Jesus Christ. We see Jesus in agony of body and soul afflicted and bowed down. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, He prayed and prayed and prayed and was sweating even drops of blood, intensity of suffering and intercession. But that's not how Psalm 6 ends. We know that His prayer was heard that His sacrifice was accepted, that His suffering was ended, that He was raised from the dead, that He was exalted and glorified and rewarded as our triumphant, conquering Lord and Savior. And we see this in verses 8 through 10. We see a complete turn, and now the psalmist is victorious. This is Jesus risen from the dead, and He says, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, the Lord has heard my plea, the Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. What a change we see at the end of this psalm. There were those who rejected him, who despised him, his enemies. And now they who, who shamed him or tried to shame him, they who troubled him and surrounded him, now they will be greatly troubled. Now they will be turned back. Now they will be put to shame in a moment, the scriptures say. And I must direct myself in this sermon to the enemies of Jesus Christ. And the enemies of Jesus Christ are all those who have not bowed before Him and believed in His name, if you have not bowed in honor and reverence to Jesus Christ and believed in Him and confessed Him, you are His enemy. And I must warn you, if you look at the cross and you see that dying man and you wag your head and say, disgusting, weak, shameful. If that's what you see when you see Jesus bowed down in Gethsemane, when you see Jesus bound and, and buffeted in, in Gabbatha, if you see Jesus gasping and dying on, in, at Gethsemane, if that's what you see, I warn you, you have made a bitter choice. You are that prodigal son who says, "'I'll take heaven here, please.'" I'll have my inheritance now, thank you very much. Pleasures for me are here on the earth. But you are seeking finite joys and fleeting pleasures. And what is their end? Psalm 6 verse 10 says their end is shame and great trouble. Because the, wi- the wicked, the unbelieving, they seek satisfaction in finite goods And that finite satisfaction that lasts for just a moment leads to infinite suffering. If you despise the cross and the one who hung on it, your fate is certain. Do you know what that fate will be, that shame and great trouble? The darkness of hell will terrify you. The flames of hell will torture you. And it will be a place that you cannot escape. If you've ever been in a prison, I hope to visit other people, if you've ever been in a prison, you, you get a real sense of inescapability. Even if I wanted to, I could not get out. There is no power that I have to get out of this place. You get a, a strong sense of entrapment in a prison Hell is a place you cannot escape, and you will die there in fear and pain forever. Your conscience will sting you forever and ever, as all the wickedness that once was your pride will become your everlasting shame, and all those things you did that once you boasted of, they'll just sting you over and over because you can't forget them. You can't escape them. You did it, and you know you did it. And all that sinful satisfaction that you sought in this world, the pleasures that you pursued, they will become a bitter and sour taste that you can't get out of your mouth and you can't forget it. And can you escape your own conscience? Can you get rid of your conscience? Can you remove it from you? No. You will wail and groan and rage and die in shame and regret forever and ever but do you know what the greatest torment and terror of hell will be? Do you know what the worst punishment of hell will be? We can speak of the sharp pains of the body, that resurrected body that is designed for torment and sent to the lake of fire you can think of that torment and it is it is unspeakably terrible and you can speak of the we can think of the wrenching madness of the soul that remembers all our sin and cannot escape it those things are horrible but they're not the worst thing the worst thing is in psalm 6 verse 9 depart from me You see, there's something that every single man and woman and child wants. There's something that the soul of man desperately needs and longs for. And it's not food. It's not drink. It's not health. It's not wealth. It's not fame. It's not family. We have a deep desire, a need that's been woven into the very fiber of our being. Do you know what it is? It is God. We have a need for our Creator, We have a need for the light of deity to shine upon us, the knowledge of God, the favor of God, the glory of God, the face of God. Every human being wants it because it's the one true infinite good. Man longs for God and longs to be with God, and man longs for the satisfaction of the love and the light of God. It's our most profound desire and most fundamental need. And Jesus Christ, the one who once hung on a cross, will say to the wicked, Depart from me. Of course, Jesus quotes this psalm during his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 7 and Luke 13. He quotes this. And when Jesus pronounces this sentence upon the wicked, it says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Depart from me. They will depart to darkness, to dissatisfaction, and to everlasting despair, hopelessness, true Despair, a realization, a sudden realization that you should have realized so long ago, but you didn't. A realization that your greatest desire, the one thing that can satisfy you forever and ever and ever, has just banished you and sent you away. And you're going to die forever deprived of that one thing that gives eternal life and blessedness. And when that sentence is pronounced by Jesus the Judge, depart from me, the deepest part of your being will ache and tremble, and it will ring in your ears forever and ever, tormenting you with endless despair, where you'll say, wait, no, anything but that, depart from me, no, please, no. That day will come, but the gospel we proclaim is that that day has not yet come. (laughs) because for now Jesus says, come to me, come to me. Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never and by no means cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And Psalm 6 reminds us that God has heard Jesus' prayer, so we know what the end is. We know the ultimate outcome for all those who trust in Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus Christ and receive Him and rest upon Him. The ultimate outcome for them, for believers, is not death. It's not darkness. It's not silence. It's not Sheol. It's light and life. It's glory and everlasting joy and delight. All that Jesus has won is ours in Him. As we heard in Sunday school from Romans 8, we are heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. In Him, our sins are forgiven. In Him, our sinful nature is regenerated and sanctified. We have been born again unto a living hope. And we can, because of that, because Jesus has conquered, because He has triumphed, brothers and sisters, we can expect glory, that when we die, our bodies remain here and dissolve. Yes, that's true. But when we die, our souls are taken by the angels to be with the Lord. And there in heaven, the work of transformation in the soul that was begun in regeneration and sanctification is immediately completed. The soul is glorified upon death, and as glorified souls, we inhabit heaven and delight in our God. And the soul will enjoy that beatific vision, that vision of blessedness to know God with true knowledge and enjoyment, perfect knowledge and enjoyment of Him, that for which we were created and for which we have longed for every moment of our lives. And yet there's more, those bodies that we have left here that we deposit in the earth When Jesus descends to this world once more and initiates, or not initiates, but but consummates the everlasting age, those bodies that were planted will grow like seeds. They'll be raised up. And as the soul was perfected and glorified upon death, so now the body will be glorified and perfected and reunited with the soul. And then, in both body and soul, we will enjoy God We will enjoy the vision of God, that ravishing, rapturous delight of man, a joy and a glory so great that it will satisfy us forever and ever and ever, and we will never need or want anything else ever again. I don't have the words to express the glory of the glory that we ought to expect. We know it in four tastes And glimpses, but we will experience it in fullness and perfection. Brothers and sisters, expect it. Expect it. It's coming for you, and you're being prepared for it. There are some people who don't want to entrust themselves to God if it means enduring suffering all their lives, but how short sighted is that? Entrust yourself to God that though the way of the cross leads to death, Jesus has conquered death. So, when we come to the cross, when we come to our death, it has no power over us. The grave has no claim on us. The law has no charge against us. Our souls will not be required of us as the foolish rich man, but received into glory. And as so many have said before, heaven will make amends for all. If we could go to heaven and just for a moment knock on, on the door, so to speak, and get any of the saints who is now a glorified soul to speak to us. If we said, I just want to know, was it worth it? Was it worth it? They would laugh and say, brother, what, what are you asking? What a foolish question. Was it worth it? Oh, brother, go back to earth, live for the Lord, and wait, you will see. The afflictions that we bear here will fade and be forgotten as the joy of the glory of God overpowers all our sin, sorrow, and suffering. Believers, will you take your inheritance now, or will you wait for it? Will you be excused from suffering on earth by pursuing pleasure and have an earthly glory? Would you give up the way of the cross? What folly and lack of faith that would be. Remember that finite suffering for us, leads to infinite joy because God is the sum and the source of all good, the true infinite good that we will enjoy forever and ever. So express yourself to God and trust yourself to God and expect the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank You and we praise You that we can express ourselves to You and You as a loving Heavenly Father hear us. We thank You that we can entrust ourselves to You because You as a loving Heavenly Father limit and lead all things for our good and Your glory. And we thank You that we can expect glory because of what Jesus Christ has already accomplished for us. We thank you and we praise you and we ask you to help us to be patient and faithful until that time that we enter into our heavenly home and that new creation that Jesus has prepared.